reading today is from Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 5, the first 16 verses. It's a difficult passage in our culture today. It may rub, it certainly would rub our culture wrong, and it may rub some of us wrong. But this is the word of the one and only true living God. So does he win or do you win when it comes to difficult passages? Hear the words of our God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Here ends the reading of the word of the Most Holy God. Thank you, Tim. Well, one day in the early church when Peter and John uh, were going to the temple to pray, a lame man was carried to the temple gate to beg for alms. And when this lame beggar asked Peter and John for money, Peter looked at him and said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have... I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And then we're told in Acts 4 that immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up he began to walk. And as he walked into the temple, he wouldn't stop praising God. The, the people who witnessed this were amazed, and rightly so, for this man had been lame his entire life. But, but sadly, Peter and John got into a heap of trouble for doing this good deed in the name of Jesus. Um, Peter and John were very clear that it was Jesus whom these Jews had crucified that, in fact, gave this man the ability to walk. And the religious leaders at that time were jealous and fearful because crowds of people were turning from them to follow Jesus. And so the priests and the Sadducees arrested Peter and John and threatened them and commanded them to no longer speak the name of Jesus. But we're told Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, simply said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Praise God for that. Here is what I want you to see this morning. When Jesus saves you, he changes you. Peter was changed from a man who three times denied even knowing Jesus to boldly making the person and work of Jesus known to all. The, the lame man began to walk and leap and praise God. When, when Jesus saves you, you will begin to be different. And the priests and the Sadducees Notice that too. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we read this. Now, when they, the priests and Sadducees, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> the gospel is powerful. The gospel saves sinners. The gospel transforms sinners. And one of the ways that transformation begins to show up is in relationships. And relationships within the church in particular. Um, our sermon text for today is 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 through 16, which Tim read. And here in this text, we learn how our relationships within the church begin to change because of Jesus. Here we learn how those saved by Jesus will begin to care for one another. Uh, 14 of these 16 verses will address how we are to care for widows but in the first two verses, we learn a general principle or truth that applies to all of our relationships. In verses 1 and 2, we learn to treat all people with proper respect. Um, now remember that the context here is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing younger Timothy, equipping him and instructing him to be a leader in the church there in Ephesus. But what Timothy learns here he was to reproduce in other leaders and in fact the entire church. 
So all members of the church body are really impacted at what is said here in these verses. Verses 1 and 2 simply say, do not rebuke. So the, the idea here is to not sharply rebuke or don't give a verbal strike. Don't strike with your words. So do not rebuke an older man, but encourage um, the word for encourage could also be translated exhort. It's the same Greek word here that can be used to encourage or a bit stronger is exhort depending on the situation. So do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So here are instructions on how Timothy was to treat older men, younger men, uh, older women, younger women. That pretty much covers everyone, at least all, all of the adults. So it's also important to remember that one of Timothy's primary responsibilities was to command certain men to no longer teach a different or false gospel. Uh, Paul makes a reference to this command three times in chapter 1. Then chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of someone commanding someone else to stop something, but rest assured it should not include disrespectful speech. Um, leaders and leaders of the church, but really all of us, um, often must face problems with people. Um, but how you speak to people when there are problems becomes really important. And if you think verses 1 and 2 don't really apply to commanding someone to stop teaching a different gospel, let, let me draw your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Here we see it more clearly how we should speak even to those who are our opponents. Verse 24, Paul says to Timothy, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, notice that, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So being harsh and verbally acoustic won't help change someone's heart. Only God can change someone's heart. Only God can really grant repentance. So the Holy Spirit will empower you to be clear and firm and kind when you correct your opponent. You can do that without being uh, harsh or disrespectful. Uh, you don't have to speak in a demeaning way. You don't have to call someone names. You don't have to yell at them with a red face with name, uh, veins sticking out your neck. Those, 
disrespectful means of communication are not more effective than the Holy Spirit using your clear, firm, kind, gentle speaking of the truth with utter dependence upon the Spirit of God to give repentance. And so, again, Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Uh, Paul is not saying that you never correct or exhort an older man. Instead, he is saying, when you do, do it with the kind of respect and honor due your father, or the respect and honor due your mother when talking with an older woman. Um, I, I understand that everyone has experienced a positive model of communication within the home. Um, but my hunch is that if you haven't experienced parents communicating well, you also know that something was wrong. Uh, Paul here in these verses is assuming the positive familial example of good communication in the home. It, it's in the home that God intends for there to be free free-flowing love and respect and commitment that shapes and influences and flavors your communication. Uh, we all know that it is fitting to honor your parents. And I also know that for some, it's not easy to do that. We, we know that doing that is what the Spirit wants to produce in us, but Paul's point in verses 1 and 2 is that we speak to those who are older and younger, both men and women, with the kind of honor and respect we should give those that we cherish as family. Uh, because that is really what we are as a church. We are adopted into God's family. I, I, I would argue this is really, really important today. Our culture is in a serious crisis when it comes to the way in which we talk with one another, especially when we disagree with one another. So, some think that the use of social media has given them a license to say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. We, we live in an age where people kill and murder others with their words all the time. And if you hold a different view than me, then I have the right to belittle you and demean you. I can call you names and humiliate you. I can even attack you and tear you to shreds with my words. But folks, this should not be. Even our worst enemy is still made in the image and likeness of God. We, we must learn to speak to one another in respectful ways, even or especially when we disagree. This should be true in public discourse, but it should be all the more true within the church family, the family of God. God has made us to be social creatures. We are made to live in relationships, and it's in those relationships we must treat all people with proper respect, particularly so when we are working through problems. 
So that's verses 1 and 2. Now, as we turn to verses 3 and 3 through 16, we learn some other important principles or truths that should shape the relationships that we have with others and with widows in particular. Verse 3 introduces this section by giving an overall principle which will then be applied to different situations. Uh, Verse 3 simply says, honor widows who are truly widows. Um, If you honor someone, you treat them with, with value. They're important to you. They matter to you as individuals. You listen to them. You care for them. You love them. You serve them. And here we're told to honor widows who are truly widows. This undoubtedly in this context meant that honoring them would include helping them financially. Uh, In that day, women who had lost their husband were particularly vulnerable. In that day, women normally didn't have the means of making an income. There wasn't a husband's pension to live on. And when their husband died, women would have a very difficult time keeping a roof over their head and food on the table. And so caring for widows became important. Uh, You'll remember in Acts 6 the story of some of the widows among the Greek-speaking Jews being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, and it caused a problem. And if it had not been addressed in a timely way there in Acts 6, it would have become a bigger problem. So here Paul explains what honoring widows really look like in three different situations. First of all, Families should support their own widows. Verses 4 through 8 say this. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is, a tr- she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, caring for your mother or grandmother or your father or your grandfather in their old and vulnerable age is a godly thing to do. It pleases the Lord. It it may not always be easy. It may require financial sacrifice on your part. You may have to delay some of your own plans. There may be things that you don't get to do that you really wanted to do, but please know that God is pleased and your elderly parents or grandparents are honored when you sacrifice to care for them. And, and actually, Paul says that if you don't, if you don't do that, you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Um, when we have received... 
God's great love given to us in the gift of Jesus, who gave his life on the cross to meet our greatest need, it changes us. God's love in us empowers us to love other people. When we love others in the same manner, we do love others in the same manner in which God has loved us in Christ. And so to turn our backs on the needs of our relatives really is to deny Christ, to turn our back on Christ. L- listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 through 18, and I quote, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So when Paul says our failure to care for widows in our own family makes us worse than an unbeliever, it seems that he's suggesting that even those outside the church understand how fitting it is to care for widows in your family and how much more so should it be for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. But There are times when a widow doesn't have a family to care for her. Uh, She's all alone. She has no family to care for her. I think think of Marge Hibchin when I think of this passage. Um, Some of you remember Marge. She passed away uh, just before we moved into this building. So it would have been, I think, early 2009 or late 2008. Um, I can remember on one occasion, she wanted to be in the building. And so we got her to our car, and we actually drove the car into the, into the building and said, Marge, you're now in the place where the auditorium will be. And so she was satisfied with that. She was happy to be in the building um, that was not yet done. But Marge was all alone. And for years, she had served others. Uh, one time, Shelly and I ran into Marge at a restaurant in Elm Grove. And we said, Marge, what are you doing here? She said, oh, I'm taking my friend to her doctor's appointment. So that, that's the kind of stuff that Marge did all the time. She cared for other ladies, even in her old age. But she came to the point in her last years where she needed help and she needed to be cared for. Um, But she was a person, as verse 5 said, who set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Um, Maybe you've gotten a drink at the water fountain over by the women's restroom. Um, If you have, you'll notice on the wall right by the drinking fountain is a picture of shoes. And you've probably have thought, that's really kind of weird, that the church has a picture of shoes on the wall. Um, What's going on with that? Let me tell you what's going on with that. Marge needed a pair of shoes. And so she prayed. And she prayed. And she didn't tell anyone that she needed shoes. And a couple of days later, 
some servant in the church that I will remain, uh, will remain unnamed sitting next to Tony, brought her a pair of shoes. And they were a perfect fit for Marge. And she was so excited. I can remember one time we were sitting down in the old building and um, she was sitting on the pew and she lifted up her foot above the pew and said, look what God provided for me. She was so excited that God provided her a pair of shoes that she had prayed for, that she needed. She, she trusted the Lord, depended upon the Lord again and again. So that's why there's a picture of shoes on the wall next to the drinking fountain there next to the women's restroom. In those kinds of situations, the church should support faithful widows who have no family. Verses 9 and 10 say, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now, as, as a church, we are a family. And when there are no blood relatives to care for a widow, the church made up of people purchased with the blood of Jesus, we honor and care for the widows. Notice that there are certain widows who are enrolled. Um, the context here suggests that the church would officially recognize and put some people on a list of people for whom they would provide care. Um, but verse 6 suggests that those widows who lived a self-indulgent life should not be enrolled. A widow who has lived a life indulging oneself ex excessively on their own appetites and desires should not be enrolled. The church should not take upon itself the responsibility to provide material support for the widow who has lived her life chasing selfish dreams, selfish desires. Instead, the church should commit themselves to care for widows who are truly alone and who are not less than 60 and who have earned a reputation of doing good works who have been faithful in caring for their children if they were able to have children, and who have shown hospitality to others, washed the feet of the saints, or have served and cared for the afflicted. So if they have lived a life devoted to good works, they should be put on the list of people for whom the church will provide care. We see here God holding up and esteeming the life of a person who is devoted to good works. This includes serving people, seeing a need and meeting a need, helping people however you can according to their needs. Paul, Paul teaches us here to give honor to the widow who has loved God and loved people. The, the widow who has devoted her life to loving and serving and caring for others in need should be cared for by the church when she is in need. 
Um, my, my hunch is that you would have no problem embracing a plan to provide care for a widow in need who has devoted her life to serving others in need. Um, the ladies of the church did that with Marge. In her latter years, uh, you set up a, a schedule. You took turns going in there to be with her, to, to serve her and to help her. Uh, she really wanted to die in her home. Um, she ended up dying in a hospice care. I think she was there just a couple of days. But she didn't want to leave her house. And I said, Marge, this, she said, I don't want to leave my home. I said, Marge, this isn't your home. You're longing to be home. And you're going to be home soon. She said, okay, I'm ready to go. And they took her to the hospice and it was a couple of days. But the ladies of the church loved her, cared for her, provided for her. So my, my hunch is that you have no problem embracing a plan to provide care for a widow in need who's devoted her life to serving others in need. But, but maybe you are a bit uncomfortable with not enrolling a widow who has lived a self-indulgent life. Maybe you think that sounds a bit tough on this widow. Certainly, God has lavished us with undeserved favor in Christ. God is a God of mercy and of grace and of love. And I would say, yes, indeed, that is true. But God also loves us enough to lead us to change and grow. God wants what is very best for us. That's why we are taught in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, these things. And listen as I read, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, 6 through 12. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So I would say that living a self-indulgent life is a life of idleness. Um, so, Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and do not accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Um, and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave this command. Now listen to this. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If anyone is not willing to work, he can work, but he's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So certainly Christ teaches us to give sacrificially for the good of other people. There are many times that people truly do have legitimate needs, and we should give uh, quickly and generously to help. But there are other times 
when the giving of our resources only supports bad habits of being irresponsible. And I would say it's okay to err on the side of grace when there's a question. But when it becomes clear that our helping is contributing to their irresponsibility, it's best for them if we don't give. If someone is able to work but refuses, he should not eat. We, we should not support his sinful habits. God wants something better for them. Um, that's what Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 says, and I quote, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So this is not promoting a proud self-sufficiency. We should guard our hearts against that. We, We know that we are dependent upon Christ for energy and health to work and to eat, but rather this is promoting a humble reliance upon and obedience to Christ to be a person um, for us to become a person who learns to work as as he or she is able and to be givers to people not takers from people and this leads to our final point this morning we learn here in verses 11 through 16 that younger widows should not depend on the church for their financial care. Younger widows should not depend on the church for their financial care. Listen, beginning with verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Now, apparently this is speaking uh, to marrying for the wrong reasons, self-indulgent reasons, or making marriage more important than walking with Christ because in verse 14 Paul tells younger widows to marry so if you marry for the wrong reasons verse 12 says you so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith Uh, maybe this includes being willing to marry an unbeliever just because you value his money more than you do Christ maybe you value a life of ease more than you do Christ Verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, when someone lives a self-indulgent life, it doesn't produce anything good. Um, when life is always about you, 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 it, 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 it doesn't... It, in fact, causes all kinds of problems. If you're idle, it's not that you're doing nothing. It's that you're doing all of the wrong things. You go from house to house, talking too much, stirring up trouble, causing much hurt to people. And, again, this is not a good thing to do. This is not the kind of person a church should take the responsibility on to feed. We minister to them. We speak truth in love to them. We want to help them, but that help should not include regular financial assistance. Our help should be directed to equipping them to find 
meaningful ways to serve others for their good. Now, certainly I understand that a young widow faces unique challenges. So what should a young widow do? Well, the Spirit says in verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So this doesn't mean that this happens quickly or easily. It's not automatic. The church should encourage and pray and help young widows embrace God-given opportunities in front of them. We should be actively involved in their lives. We should help them put Christ first, to trust Christ. And we teach them to actively pursue a life filled with working hard to give of themselves to others for their good and for God's glory. This enables them to experience God's very best for them. Now, Paul ends this section in verse 16 by uh, affirming and really reaffirming verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So this, this is a wonderful passage that teaches us how to care for one another within the church. Um, we treat all people with proper respect. Uh, we talk with all people, young and old men and women, with proper respect, especially when there are problems that we're working through, and even if we strongly disagree. Families, we're told here, should support their own parents and grandparents. This ought to be considered a privilege. This passage tells us it is something that, in fact, pleases God. Churches, in fact, should support faithful widows who have no family. And then we're also told that we should, as a church, help young widows follow Christ and his plan for their lives with with all of their heart. Um, And I would just say, May, may God give us wisdom and strength to, one, understand these principles, but then to work them out in relationship with, with one another, where we care for one another. We're committed to one another, and we want to provide the kind of care that is in step with the very kind of care that God would want us to give. And in that, we pray that God would be honored and God would be glorified. So let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you for the way that you care for us. Thank you for the way that you teach us to serve others, to love others as you have served us, and as you have loved us. Help us to be a people who develop habits of sacrificially giving of ourselves to others for their good. Help us to be people who, by your Spirit, put to death self-centered, self-indulging desires and ways of life. 
Father, help us to see the opportunities that are in front of us, not just to pursue what we want, but to use everything that you've given to us in our life for the good of others and for the glory of your name. For Father, we're reminded of how Christ came, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the good of others. Um, so Father, help us to, to practice those things and help us to be particularly sensitive to, to those individuals who have legitimate needs and give us wisdom and lead us by your spirit to care for them in faithful, kind, generous ways for their good and for your glory. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.